Welcome to 16 Minutes, our podcast where we discuss tech news and trends and what's hype and what's real. I'm Zoran. In today's episode, we have two short segments, both on bioscience topics, including one on the recent news of Google's DeepMind AlphaFold protein folding AI, which we previously discussed on this show in episode number 48, being opened up to biology researchers and what that means for innovation. And the other segment, which we talk about first, is about news that Moderna has started clinical trials for a flu vaccine called mRNA-1010, that is based on the same mRNA technology that Moderna and Pfizer used for their COVID vaccines, and that several other companies, including Sanofi and Glaxo, all are actively working on for the influenza use case. Our experts in this segment are A16Z Bio General Partners, Vinita Agarwala and Jorge Conde, who have joined us for many of our vaccine-related episodes, which you can find at a16z.com vaccines. We start with Jorge explaining what mRNA technology does that could lead to improved flu vaccines. For quick context, mRNA or messenger RNA allows vaccines to be tailored more rapidly than vaccines using traditional technology. One of the big challenges we've had historically with flu vaccines is that you have to predict which strains are likely going to circulate in a given year. And because the lead times are somewhere in the order of four to six months, sometimes you get it right, sometimes you get it wrong. And as a result, the efficacy for flu vaccines has been something on the order of 40 to 60%. And so given the mRNA technology is more modular, therefore it's more rapid. If you can essentially produce any year's given strain closer to what's actually circulating, you're much more likely to have a more effective vaccine. So I think that's why this is a particularly big deal because it could just change the way we think about our annual flu shots. And more importantly, it could change how effective our annual flu shots are because we'll be more efficient in producing the right vaccine for any given year. So let's get to the specifics of what's in the news, Vanita. Moderna announced this is phase one of mRNA-1010. What does that mean? Where exactly are we in this study and what happens next? This is the very first human dosing. So this is Moderna's phase one study to assess safety, tolerability of a mRNA-based flu vaccine in human subjects. And from this point on, we'd expect trials to take place in the traditional format. They'll have to continue expanding the cohorts, continue to titrate dosage. And what is different about a vaccine trial as compared to any other therapy is that they are going to have to, at some point, conduct a large phase three during the time when influenza is circulating to really get enough data points on preventing infection. The same way we saw happen with the COVID vaccines, we got the most data. You need a lot of cases um, happening in the community to be able to assess efficacy of your vaccine. So let's put this on the long arc of innovation as we do on 16 Minutes and at the same time separate what's hype from what's real. We just had COVID vaccines produced by Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech that had high efficacy rates. So are these flu vaccine efforts now a direct result of mRNA's COVID success, or would we be looking at mRNA-based flu vaccines anyway? I think in some ways what COVID did is it accelerated the future. You know, it was really the first demonstration of how mRNA can be a powerful technology for generating novel vaccines. And so once you've demonstrated that as a technology that it is effective in one case, you've now made a more compelling case to invest in using this technology to develop vaccines in other cases. What about the bigger picture of this mRNA news in the context of COVID and its variants? So we've got the Delta variant emerging as a threat, and Pfizer recently announced that it plans to seek authorization for a COVID booster shot. 
but by using the original spike protein and not programming specifically for the Delta variant. So why use the original vaccine when we have this quick programmable, more effective mRNA capability to attack the variant more directly? Yeah, it's a really fascinating story that we're seeing playing out where the companies are talking about booster shots for waning antibody levels and arguing that the in vitro data and other data suggests that a recently vaccinated person with the original mRNA vaccines, aka those developed now almost 18 months ago, that because those vaccines are believed to have efficacy against the Delta variant, why not just pursue a booster of the very original vaccine? And that's compelling in the midst of a fast-moving pandemic. Certainly, that would probably be faster than going through the process by which to introduce a new mRNA Delta strain-specific vaccine. And yet there's the irony that, well, the whole point was supposed to be that we could, in a matter of days or weeks, kind of change the nature of the booster. And so it does beg the question, if we're going to go through a booster, hey, why not at least program in the Delta mRNA, which we know the exact sequence of, we know that it has different properties, we know that it's much more infective, we know that it's likely to drive the next wave of this pandemic. And so it's sort of the What's possible in principle is not always what plays out practically because we don't know yet how to do this kind of on-the-fly manipulation of a product and put it through the regulatory process that would be required to do sort of boosters on the fly, right? But I hope we figure it out. And I'm sure the companies are thinking about it and working on it, but navigating at the same time the reality in front of them that maybe boosters will help us with this very fast-moving Delta variant. Now, what about how mRNA vaccines will be used in the future? So Moderna, in its press release, said that it planned to combine different antigens to protect against multiple viruses, such as influenza, SARS-CoV-2, and RSV, with the goal of an mRNA combination vaccine so that people can get one shot each fall for high-efficacy protection against the most problematic viruses. How realistic is this vision of a one-size-fits-all sort of once-a-year vaccine that's effective against all these different viruses? You know, and of course, it's not exactly analogous, but it's not without precedent, right? I mean, for those of us with children, when they're young, they get an MMRV vaccine, right? So it's measles, rubella, mumps, and chickenpox. And so, like, there's a precedent for this concept, and I think this technology has the potential to allow us to get there. You know, of course, assuming they can demonstrate that it works with influenza, because what mRNA technology represents is giving the body or the cells, the instructions to make the bits of the virus that will cause the immune system to recognize it and to protect you against that virus if you were to be infected with it, you can theoretically do that in cocktail form. So think of it as a cocktail for, you know, an annual shot for all respiratory diseases, right? So that could be COVID and it could be influenza and other things. And so I think that's the vision that Moderna has. Benita, how far could this go? Like how will companies and health officials and regulatory agencies decide which viruses are included in future mRNA combo vaccines and what are the factors they will look at? It's going to be interesting to see which infections and which viruses we go after. Flu was always very high on the list just because it actually is a virus that causes high morbidity and mortality. And we already had an infrastructure in place for vaccination. Zika, dengue have all been discussed as high unmet needs. But it is an interesting societal question to ask, how low on the morbidity scale should we go? 
to start vaccinating. Yes, an adenoviral infection, another type of common cold, for example, or a rhinovirus infection. Yes, these cause some morbidity, but you know, at the end of the day, we don't know actually some of the benefits that, you know, having circulating viruses might confer to our immune systems. And there is this sort of um, existential question of how much should we be vaccinating ourselves against? And is it possible that if we wrap ourselves up in vaccines to everything that we miss out on some other core aspect of our own biology? Yeah, that's going to be an ongoing debate that I'm sure we'll be discussing more on 16 Minutes. So let's close by bringing it back to the news of Moderna developing a flu vaccine using mRNA. Jorge, what's the bottom line? For the first time in a long time, we have a new technology, which appears to be very robust, very programmable, which I think will give us the potential to develop rapidly vaccines for a wide range of viruses. And I'm sure we'll have its challenges, but I think that just gives us the opportunity and potential to really be responsive, not only in the case of pandemics, but in endemic situations where we have seasonal disease with high burdens of disease and morbidity or even mortality. A lot of people in the vaccine field have been describing a novel and finally effective flu vaccine as the holy grail of vaccines before the coronavirus came along. And so it really is a milestone that's not to be overlooked or understated. It's directly enabled in part by the progress that companies made in mRNA vaccine clinical development through the COVID pandemic. The flip side of that, of course, is that we have some work to do to figure out the nuances of how to actually leverage the programmability of the mRNA vaccines. So still TBD on how much we can leverage the week-to-week, month-to-month programmability that the mRNA platforms offer. Jorge, Vanita, thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you. Thank you. In our second segment, we talk about Google's DeepMind AlphaFold, which in partnership with the European Molecular Biology Laboratory, is publicly sharing its entire protein structure database with predicted protein structure models for about 20,000 proteins expressed by the human genome, that will now, it was just announced, be freely and openly available to the scientific community. Now, back in December, DeepMind outperformed 100 other teams from 20 countries as part of a global challenge in predicting 3D structure of proteins using computation. The system predicted protein structures nearly as accurately as laboratory experiments. Sonal and A16Z general partner for bio, Vijay Pandey, discussed it on a 16 Minutes previously. Today, Vijay joins us to talk about the news in the context of scientific research. Why does it matter that a huge database of very accurate predicted protein structures is now freely available? Databases are really important because what it does is that it turns what used to be an experiment into basically a lookup, a computer lookup. And that's a huge thing. It used to be that if you want to understand a gene, you had to go sequence the gene. And now you just go to the web. And turning experiments into database lookups are vastly enabling, that you can do tons of what-ifs, you can just poke around, and you can build on top of building. But the greater, I think, surprise, and this is the part that I was really watching to see what would happen, is how people reacted to it. Because I think 10 years ago, the reaction would be, oh, okay, well, it's a predicted structure, but you know, I want the real thing. I don't know how much I can trust this or, or so on. And once you get close to experimental precision, now we're at a point where computation just go to town. And the cultural change and the acceptance of this, I think is really intriguing. And I think it opens the door for other areas in computation that are basically 
having similar levels of accuracy where it's comparable to experimental error could now start having similar databases start being put in the hands of biologists who normally wouldn't be the practitioners to run these calculations. And now they don't have to because it's been pre-calculated sitting there and they can just build on top of it. So how will people be able to make use of this new database right off the bat? Like what does this open up and what are the immediate use cases we might see? So in terms of companies and biologists, there's the database itself. And I think that might be just really lead gen and getting people excited for what the software tools can do. People will then run the software tools themselves. And this could be run in a couple different ways. It could be run on the sort of natural wild type sequences, or you could start making mutations and asking what if questions, what if we made this mutation, what if we made that mutation, what change do we see? Let's first prototype it in the simulation. And then if we get the change we want, then we'll do the experiment. You would ideally want to do a million experiments. We can't do that. Let's winnow that down to a hundred experiments with computation. And so you can now do things that normally wouldn't be possible. I think there's going to be so many creative ways to build on top of just what's been given. But then the second stage of this is that people now will improve upon those methods, that they'll take the open source and that you'll have a whole fleet of people. Which people are we talking about? Who might be doing the innovating? This is a great area for computer scientists to be working in. This is an exciting area where you can be on the bleeding edge of making contributions. This is where the Wild West exciting frontier is. I think the door is open for computer scientists who really will learn and embrace the biology and the complexity of the domain to come in and make not just incremental changes, but make really major leaps. And I think that you could see it within the specific domain of protein structure or proteins in general, protein design. But I think you'll see this for other molecules, for RNA, for anything that has structure even. And the domain will gradually become wider and wider. And this approach will only become more validated as more people come in and more experiments get done. And we see these types of proofs. So this all sounds wonderful, fantastic. And it's clearly a good thing for the world. But let's pause for a minute and think about what does this not represent? Like, is this as magical as it sounds? Or are there ways that we have to think about it in terms of, okay, let's not get ahead of ourselves. This may take some time or there may be some weaknesses to it. What do you think there? Yeah, it's tempting to make these leaps into science fiction. I think here, this has to be viewed in the context of a 10 to 20 year arc of AI into biopharma and healthcare. Like you can ask the question, how long will it be before AI designs all of drugs that are designed in a given year? And we are far from that. We're at the point now where we're doing structures. This is developing into the areas of drug design, but this is just at the very basics. And I think what gets everyone excited is that we can see what the rest of the movie is going to look like. But this movie is not going to play out over a year. This is going to be a decade plus worth of refinements and that building on top of each other. I think one of the biggest differences is that companies that were not AI specialists now can get access to state-of-the-art AI. Uh, for this particular area. And so you can be a company where really, you really are a biology company where AI is not the core of what you do, but now you can get access to this. That's actually a huge, huge step forward. And so even if all you're going to do is use it out of the box, that's enormous. So let's talk about broader trends and where this news fits. So in its press release, DeepMind said AlphaFold is being used by teams at the University of Colorado Boulder studying antibiotic resistance, and the University of California, San Francisco studying SARS-CoV-2. But it's also being used by the Drugs for Neglected Diseases Initiative and the Center for Enzyme Innovation. So what do these partnerships and these uses kind of tell us about the arc of innovation here? Powerful technology, when put in the hands in an open source or universal way, shifts the power from centralization to long tail. 
the long tail of biology and tech and biology, that's very exciting because actually the groups that you mentioned as partners, these are not the groups that have billions and billions of dollars of financing. And if they did, they could actually do things the old way. It's only when you're struggling up and comer with creative ideas, but you don't have the funding that sort of the centralized incumbents would have. That's where these things really are game changing. So I think this is also part of that story, the long tail of biology story, and that lots of creative groups that normally wouldn't be even in the game now get to be peers of the big groups. So Vijay, what's the bottom line for you with this news? We are on this arc of, I think, AI and engineering transforming biopharma and just biology very broadly in, in many disciplines. It's a long road. It's not something we're going to get there overnight. But watching this mile marker go by, it, I think, gives us all confidence that we are on the right path, that key milestones are being hit. We're going to see these transitions to the long tail of biology where people can make great contributions. Great. Well, Vijay, thanks so much for being with us on 16 Minutes today. Yeah, thank you.